Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and finding a way to check it out. Yeah, and on today's episode, well, it's another one of those episodes where you can divide us by 12, and therefore, it's time for us to answer your questions. So, we got a whole pile of questions here, and a whole lot of answers that we got to get through. So, let's get to it. That's right, man. There's going to be science, there's going to be opinions, there's going to be goofy stuff. But before any of that happens, please take a listen to these messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, publishers of Zymergy Magazine, organizers of HomebrewCon, and enjoyers of homebrew. Join your friends in fermentation at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Before we get into the questions and see if we got any answers for them, we got a few announcements to make. What you got, Drew? Well, the first one is if you haven't checked your podcast feed or you haven't checked the website, please do because last week's episode of The Brew Files, episode 101, is out. And it's all about how you go and make, for the love of mercy, a quintuple IPA. Whoa. You know, even for me, that may be a little over the top. Well, and this beer was definitely over the top, coming in at 17% alcohol and 170 IBUs. But what actually amazed me about it was it was damn drinkable. Surprisingly drinkable. <laughs> actually, so it's not a lot of it, right? Yeah. Well, he, Tim sells all the rest of his beers in 16 ounce cans or actually even the, the rare occasional 22 ounce bomber. You guys remember those? <laughs> and this, uh, this beer is potent enough that he packages it in 12 ounce cans instead. 12 ounce, only 12 ounces of 17%. Yeah. And before somebody starts writing in and telling us you can't have 170 IBUs in a beer, Forget it. You can if you want to, and it measures that way. Yeah, well, uh, Tim even admits in the episode the 170 IBUs is calculated. So, yeah, yeah right. reality is your IBUs are going to be much lower, and I'd be surprised if they were over 100 because reality. Well, I mean, supposedly that's about where the taste threshold is, but I don't think that's where – I think you can get more IBUs than that into a beer. Sure. It's just – well, also remember – at 170, though, huh? Yeah, but also remember – the IBU is a lie. That's right. <laughs> Who cares? All right. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year, it's wrapping up. It's 
Denny. It's World Central Kitchen. Uh, they are a killer organization that uh, helps fund food needs where you live. Uh, you have something like a disaster happen, you need food to get out to a bunch of people. World Central Kitchen helps fund local food sources to uh, get the food out where it needs to be in your community. Uh, we think this is important enough. We've been doing it for a whole year instead of just six months. It's going to run through the end of June, and we're going to match any contributions that come in. And I have to say, guys, you've been like paltry so far. Come on. Loosen up those pockets. Get some money in here. Hurt us so that we have to contribute a whole lot of money to you. So uh, go to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Click on the Patreon link and give what you can, and we'll pass it along to World Central Kitchen. Yes, make it harder for me to fund my Chihuahua's college education, please. <laughs> That's right. Come on, take money out of our pockets, please. All right. And now, normally, this would be where we either do feedback or other announcements or head over to the pub. But again, given that this is episode 132, which is divisible by that magical number of 12, it's time for us to dig into your questions. And unlike previous episodes, we're not actually going to uh, swing these around in any sort of categories, because let's have fun with it. <laughs> and, and besides, let's, let's just say we're lazy. Uh, it, it's going to be more fun if we just bounce around on stuff. Then you guys won't know what we're doing. There we go. And so let's get into the party immediately. And we'll start with our first question, which comes from Mike in Maine, who emailed us to say, actually asking two questions. With regard to recipes such as Denny's Bourbon Vanilla Porter, why use vanilla beans versus real vanilla extract? It seems like you could have more control of the vanilla flavor by using extract, but maybe there's a flavor difference like using dry versus fresh spices. So the answer to that is I started doing it with beans, and it says that in the recipe, because when I first started making that beer, I didn't have access to really good vanilla extract, uh, but I did have access to pretty good beans. Plus, back then, it's like, you know, I was a, I was a new brewer, and like many new brewers, uh, I had my biases and prejudices, and I just figured beans had to be better than vanilla extract. Also, back in that uh, time, beans weren't, you know, didn't have a street value roughly on par with cocaine. <laughs> yeah, really. How would you know that? Um, so basically, I would say yes, you're absolutely right that extract is much, much easier to control the amount of flavor you get. Uh, I find that using beans, you're always at the mercy of the quality of the beans and guessing about what's the right amount to use. So if you can find a really, really good quality extract, that would be the way to go. Basically, the the advice is use the best quality ingredient you can find, no matter what the form is. Yeah. Uh, I, I've, I've become real partial to uh, Hawaiian vanilla, uh, hawaiianvanilla.com, just because uh, my sister used to work there and got me some to try, and I thought it was just exceptionally good. But bottom line is find a good source, get the best you can, and use that. Well, and for me, I will say that one of the advantages that beans do have, if you have access to some really good quality beans, is you can play around with some different flavors, different bean types, right? Different sources of beans have different flavors to them, although I think a lot of times in brewing you'd be hard-pressed to tell. Yeah. Uh, but also, you, if you are making your own tincture extract, however you want to refer to it, you can also play around with your what your source boozes are. So, you know, I know there are lots of people out there who are doing literally vanilla extracts based on bourbon, for instance. And that can be 
that can be a lot of fun. So there's another reason that you can use beans. Uh, there's also a really good Facebook group out there called Vanilla Bean Co-op, and they actually source hundreds of pounds of beans from around the world and do these buys, and you're more than welcome to join. And I say don't make your own extract by soaking them in, in vodka or bourbon. Uh, it's harder to use. Uh, like in, Even though it's a bourbon vanilla porter, uh, add the bourbon and vanilla separately so you can control the amounts of each. Uh, you know, if you try and make your extract by soaking the beans in bourbon, you might have plenty of bourbon, but not enough vanilla by the time you, you get it added in there. So, uh, and I hate, I mean, I generally hate extracts made with soaking things in vodka. I can pretty much always taste the heat in those. Drew has a different opinion. And in this case, I won't tell him he's wrong. Hmm. All right. Well, Mike had a second question. This is also part of the reason why we're not going into categories uh, this time out, because you all have uh, written us in with many questions. Mike's second question was, with the shake-it-not-stirred method, could a new gallon spring water jug be used? It seems like some of the water could be boiled for the starter, and the rest could be used for something else. Swish some star sand around and put the cooled wort and yeast back in the gallon jug. Should I be worried about contamination with the plastic jug, or should I just use a glass bottle? You forgot the last sentence. No, I didn't. Because that's a lie. <laughs> but, uh, Mike did close his email with, thanks for all you do, and keep rocking the ukulele. Yay! Yay! Uh, you know, Mike, I think that that would just work fine. I, I don't think I would worry about it in the least. Um, the plastic jug, especially if it's brand new, should be absolutely fine to use. And if you sanitize it first, uh, I don't see an issue with that. Do you? No, just don't pour hot wort into the into the plastic bottle. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, you wouldn't want to do that anyway, even if it was glass or something. So, yeah, cool your wort, pour it back into that plastic jug, and you're good to go. There you go. All right, and our next question comes from David Schill in Cedar Falls, Iowa. It says, I just brewed a five-gallon batch of American porter, which I will convert into a coffee porter. By the way, it is an interesting trend. I swear, it seems like most of the porters I still see on the market are all coffee porters for some reason. Um, oh, boy, I'm seeing different ones than you are then, because I hardly ever see them. There you go. Uh, it's almost like there are regional differences. <laughs> Imagine that, would you? When the fermentation is done, I plan on transferring it to a keg and get the temperature down to 35 degrees Fahrenheit. Then I'll add about six ounces of roughly milled coffee beans in a sanitized bag. I'll then leave it there for two days. After that, I will prime and bottle it. My question is, will there be enough yeast in there, even after being cold for a few days, to do this? Or should I add some extra dry yeast for insurance? P.S. Before I met my wife, she used to live in Seattle. She loves coffee beers and rescued me from engineering office coffee. And, yeah, thanks for bringing back 20-year-old memories. <laughs> yeah, really, man. I know. I uh, I am uh, familiar with uh, stagehand coffee, and I would bet that it's about the same. Yeah. Um, and my answer to Dave is... Uh, you're fine. Come on. Yeah. I, I, I've I've done this where I've settled out beers for months in a keg and come back and actually bottled some of it, doing like my carbon, my big carbonation beers, like my champagne beers. And you know what? They still carbonate because there was still plenty of yeast left. Yeah. You know, not, not a problem. I've lagered beers for months and still was able to bottle condition without adding extra yeast. So not a problem, David. Just go ahead and do it. The uh, the next question comes from Paul Mills in the UK, and it's a Cezanne question, so it's Ooh. going to Drew. Thank you very much for all of the great information you have imparted over the last few years. Uh, I guess we screwed up by doing that, huh? No, it was intentional on my part. I don't know about you. Okay. Yeah, right. It was an accident on my part. 
It has helped greatly. My Brett Beat Saison went down a storm with my homebrew club. Right on, I love hearing that. I have a question around conicals. I switched using Blickman stainless conicals a few years ago and have had tremendous issues with acetaldehyde and diacetyl. I was pulling my hair out and I spent months with chasing an infection or similar before eventually realizing it was only happening with specific yeasts, mostly dry, and probably related to the conical and the amount of yeast in contact with beer at the end of the fermentation as it's in a cone rather than flat on the bottom of a bucket. At the moment, I've just doubled up on yeast volumes, so two packets of dry yeast, four for a lager, per 5% 5-gallon, or two 4-liter starters of liquid yeast. Wow, 4-liter starters. And that seems to have fixed it for the most part. Question, is the above a reasonable assumption on my part? No. Is there a... Yeah, I was, I was going to say the same thing. No, it's not a reasonable assumption on your part. Is there a rule about how much extra yeast I should use? No, because the answer is none. And assuming all of the above is reasonable with the big switch to conicals and homebrew, why aren't more people asking the same question? Yeah, that's really the question, isn't it, Paul? I couldn't find anything similar in any of the forums when I was struggling. Surely it can't be just me. P.S. I know you both like English UK based shows. Can I recommend The Detectorists? It's a BBC show, three seasons about a group of metal detectorists. It feels like the English summer in a tin. I love that. <laughs> Nothing much happens, but that's not the point. It's just a warm hearted, feel good show. And I've watched a little bit of this show, and I agree. It's, it's a really fun, warm hearted show to watch. It, it, but, it's been on my radar. I just haven't had a chance to watch it. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so back to the question here, Paul, I got to tell you, I can't imagine any reason it would be due to using conicals. Drew and I both use conicals. We haven't had the problem. Lots of other people use conicals. They haven't had the problem. Uh, commercial breweries use conicals. They don't have a problem. I would say, buddy, you're barking up the wrong tree. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Anytime you have uh, acetaldehyde or diacetyl, it does speak to a yeast health question here. But with what you're talking about, and you know the the idea, oh, is it maybe just the the you know contact time with the cone or the contact surface area with the cone versus being spread out? I can't imagine that being a thing at all, because um, I've done experiments with my conicals where I've left the yeast in solution for a very long time. I've done other experiments where I'm taking it off very quickly. Most of the time, actually, if I do end up having acetaldehyde or diastole issues, it's because I tried to kill the ferment too fast and take the yeast off too uh, too quickly. Um, the fact that the, the fact that doubling up your yeast volumes has improved your situation makes me think that there's something there's something else going on there. It's something that's rooted in what's happening with your initial yeast vitality and yeast health going into the fermenter. Uh, but he says it only happens with certain yeasts, right? So if that was really an issue, it seems like it would be happening with pretty much every yeast. Um, I don't, I mean, he doesn't say anything about how much time he's giving things to ferment. Obviously if he doubles up on yeast, it would seem like things would ferment faster. So yeah. if he was too, well, yeah, I know not necessarily, but possibly, I'm, just, I'm I'm grasping at straws here, right? Mm-hmm. So if it was a, a if his fermentation times were too short, and he started adding more yeast, maybe he would get 
the same amount of fermentation or you know more fermentation in a shorter time i don't know that that is uh, an unfounded speculation i think they're yeah <laughs> but again usually to me acetaldehyde diastole it's either yeast vitality or it's fermentation mechanics so to denny's point moving the beer too quickly trying to you know crash out the ferment it may actually you know one one thought is depending upon the yeast strain it could be yeast strain dependent and temperature wise so if, for instance, you have a yeast strain that likes to flock out more in these conicals, you know, that could that could also be a, a thing that's happening there. Again, pure speculation on my part, but in general, the, the primary gist, the first part of your question, is the above an reasonable assumption on, on your part? I'm going to have to say no. And, and Paul, I don't want to uh, offend you here, but my question also in this situation is always, are you certain you're diagnosing these faults correctly? Um, have anybody else tasted your beer and confirmed that this is really what the issue is? Um, you know, I think that you're just going to have to take a really wide ranging approach to this one. Yep. And of course you're always welcome to write in and give us more details so that we can please, please. Uh, steer. A so we better. can make more unfounded guesses. There you go. All right. Next question. Next one comes from Rich Soden in Switzerland, who is someplace I want to go someday. I have a question that you probably get all the time, and that is, how do you make a good IPA? Or rather, how can I make a good IPA? Folks around me would tell you that I am hypercritical of my own beers, but there are quite a few that I am really happy with. Cezanne's Mild, Dunkelweiss, and Dark Czech Lager, which I won a local competition with, are styles that are now forever locked in on my beers I know I can make well list. But when it gets hoppy, I'm never satisfied, even if other folks are. I am forever searching to make an IPA that pops. Pre-COVID, I was a regular in Santa Rosa, California, so my objective, and maybe the reason I'm so hard on myself, is a blind pig or maybe a Pliny. I can never decide which is better, <laughs> you and a lot of other people. <laughs> My setup is pretty simple, like a lot of folks. I have a five-year-old grandfather that works a charm, and I ferment in plastic buckets. Everything on the cold side is cleaned with oxy after use, and then typically I clean again and sterilize with star sand on brew day before use. For the ingredients, everything comes by post, but is well looked after and vacuum-packed. I also have a sack of Golden Promise and another of Extra Light Pilsner that I typically use for my base malts. I'm lucky enough that the village where I live gets an annual water analysis, and so I adjust my water using brune water to inform my additions. I'm pretty happy on that side of things. There are two areas where I do not feel that I have the control that I would like. Though I do have an STC 200, or rather the old grandfather controller, a 25-watt belt heater, and an old sleeping bag that I sometimes use to maintain a fermentation temp, I do not have any means to cool my fermentation. I ferment in my cellar, where the ambient temp dips to around 53 degrees Fahrenheit in winter and gets up to about 63 Fahrenheit in the summer. But like many, I tend to brew with the seasons. And for IPAs, this means brewing in the late winter and early spring. Oxygen. As mentioned above, I use fermentation buckets, but I also bottle condition my beers. So regardless of dry hopping, I still decant my beer from fermentation onto my priming sugar in a bottling bucket before bottling. I know that there are homebrewers with setups similar to me that make astounding IPAs and put them in bottles. So if you had my setup, how would you do it? And if I should change one thing, 
Should I get an SS Brutech or the Grainfather Conical with Glycol Chiller? P.S. Should add that for IPAs, I tend to use the Pale Ale Profile in Brewing Water. P.P.S. Just got to the end of Beer in Space and may try the Magnet Trick to avoid the oxygen. Right. And for well, people who don't remember, I have a bunch of I have a bunch of thoughts on that, man. But you can go first. Well, just real quick to set the context there for people who don't remember in Beer in Space, we talked about the. Quick tip was people using magnets to actually hold a dry hop bag above the fermentation inside the the fermenter and then pull the magnet on the outside and allow the bag to drop in to avoid any extra oxygen. My my thoughts just reading this and reading through Rich's uh, email and his setup, (sighs) I'd love to know what's not popping for him about his IPAs because that's, again, that's going to be a very personal thing. My, I wouldn't worry so much about the fermentation temperatures because I think that's where you're at is fine. Um, I do think that you have to be concerned about doing the bottle conditioning and the and the way that you're doing your transfers in your bottle bucket and the oxygen exposure there. But again, I'd like to really know a little bit more. When you say it, they don't pop. What do you mean? What about I, you? I'm, assu- I'm assuming he means the hops, right. and and I would say. That without temperature control, you're going to have a hard time because I know that the thing that made the biggest difference for me in my hoppy beers and especially IPAs was the short, cold, dry hopping method. Uh, I get so much hop presence. I mean, the first time I did it, pop was exactly the word that I used for that hop presence. Uh, so in, in that case, maybe, maybe, uh, a conical with a glycol chiller would be a, a big help to you because you could dry hop in there. Uh, two other things that I would look at is uh, a little bit more aggressive water profile than the pale ale, uh, from, uh, from Brune Water. And I would also look at your malt choices. Uh, if you're trying to make an American style IPA, I wouldn't be using Golden Promise for it. Uh, that's going to give in, in my opinion, more more body and mouthfeel than you really want for that kind of beer. Um, I, I have been really happy just going with uh, a straight American two-row malt and uh, maybe half a pound of Crystal 20 or 40 in it, and that seems to be a nice, clean malt base that lets the hops ride on top of it. So those are my three thoughts. The first thing I would do, though, man, is try and dry hop colder and, and for a short period of time. And, and Rich, write back to us and, and tell us what you're doing right now in terms of your dry hop and what you mean by pop. And maybe we can come up with some more uh, baseless guesses. Yeah, but the other thing I would also wonder for Rich being in Switzerland is, like, what is his – he says that he gets all of his ingredients via post. So I'm wondering, like, what his hops look like, you know, how those get stored actually on the way over to him. Uh, you know, because some of those things will affect the the quality, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, I would also love to know a little bit more about what's happening with the oxygen and also what you're doing for your dry hopping. Because uh, one of the other things I'm playing around with as a as a technique is trying to do that that wort acidification step to get around the pH rise that you actually see with dry hopped beers or heavily dry hopped beers, I should say. So just an, another thought out there. So give us more uh, give us some more data. But in the meanwhile, good luck. Uh, although, <laughs> yeah, I, although I will also say trying to set yourself as a target blind pig or uh, plenty, 
you've 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 made life difficult for yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean those are those are both uh, really excellent beers, and that's not to say you can't make a really excellent beer, but uh, don't expect that you're going to be hitting that uh, that mark right off the bat. Yeah, it, it even took Vinny a decade to get there. All right, and our next question comes from Glenn, who emailed us to say, "I've almost always rehydrated dry yeast." But I would like to try direct pitching next time using Fermentus USO5. The latest Fermentus dry pitching instructions are to fill the fermenter to about a third full and then add the yeast, then finish filling with wort to mix in the yeast. I don't have the option with my process, so I plan to sprinkle the yeast on top of the full fermenter. It will have foam on top. Would it be best to very gently stir the yeast to get it down into the wort rather than have it sitting on top of the foam? Or would any stirring be detrimental to the non-rehydrated yeast? Facts or speculation, welcome and appreciated. Facts and speculation about to be delivered. I was going to say, man, does this guy know us or what? Uh, you know, Glenn, there's nothing wrong with actually just sprinkling it on top of that foam. Uh, although you don't need to aerate dry yeast, that will give you some of that. Uh, you certainly don't need to rehydrate dry yeast. Uh, all the yeast manufacturers say that. You can give it a little gentle stir if you like, but there's really no need to. Uh, you know, that yeast is going to get saturated by the wort and take off. So, you know, whatever makes you feel good, but you really don't need to do anything but sprinkle it in on top. Yeah, and even if you do feel compelled to stir the yeast, I wouldn't take the risk of, like, you know, sanitizing a spoon and using the spoon to stir it in. I have literally just taken a fermenter, like a bucket or a carboy or even my conical, and just given it a kind of a, a quick zhish. Yeah, you know, like a, a quick little, a quick little roll around, you know, very gently and done that. But I agree with Denny. It's not really necessary. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with using a spoon. Drew's just like that. I'm just thinking it's just one more, one more vector. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree, man, but not, not in any seriously dangerous kind of way. So no. if, if you don't need to use a spoon, but you don't need to stir it in either. So either way. All right, and I think our last question before we take a break here is from uh, Pesh from the UK, who emailed us to say, is there any way to measure TA in sour beers at home? I've heard there is a method, and it isn't that expensive. So the question is, do you know how? And so to set the stage, TA is titratable acidity. A lot of home brewers like to, and even professional brewers, like to talk about their sour beers pH. But truthfully, pH doesn't mean much when it comes to actual flavor impact. And so you have, you have instead TA, uh, titratable acidity. I think it's also sometimes total acidity. And yes, there are very inexpensive home kits that you can buy from basically anybody who's going to sell you winemaking supplies because it's actually a big concern in the winemaking world. And you can actually buy these little kit, uh, test kits, and I think they use uh, uh, phenophaline to do the titration. And it's basically... It will take you right back to high school chemistry. You know, a little bit of this, a little bit of a marker, and now how much acid do you have to add to balance everything out and get the dye to change? You know, that sort of thing. And just to make sure I was keeping you guys above board on this, I actually went and I asked Michael Tonsmeyer, you know, a.k.a. Mr. American Sour Beer, about what he's doing over at Sapwood and if he's doing anything different than using, like, your old uh, TA phenothaline kits. And he's like, nope, that's just what I've done. It can get tricky with darker beers to see the change, because, again, you're looking for a color change in your dye. I assume you could use a pH meter to monitor pH while you titrate. Uh, he says, I usually blend to taste. Uh, measure pH after for, for reference, 
But uh, and he says that now that he's doing ciders and seltzers, oh boy, uh, he, he may revisit doing a TA. But right now it sounds like Mike and I'm guessing a lot of our sour beer brewers don't necessarily measure TA. Instead, they depend upon their palate. Yeah, that's that's always the best thing to do, man. You're, you're making beer to drink, not to measure. Although, again, to Pesha's question, yes, go find a home wine acidity kit, and that will show you how to do the titration, and they are relatively inexpensive. So, And, again, any well-stocked home wine-making uh, store should have them. There you go. There you go, indeed. We're going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, we're going to be going on with the questions and answers, so please stick around. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH mobile solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. So come on in, come on in, just come on in, and pour yourself a beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings, beer, 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 beer. beer. Welcome back. 
don't forget that if you do business with any of our sponsors, please let them know that you heard about them here on the Experimental Brewing Podcast. The next question comes from our good friend, Ralph Rice, in Gainesville, Florida. Ralph writes in to say, So I have a question that I've been thinking about and have asked some with no real answers. It has to do with naturally carbonating kegged beer. Now, before we go on, I have to say that what Ralph really means is priming a keg. Because using forced carbonation is no less natural than priming. It's all CO2. Anyway. Somewhere in the UK, the camera people just got mad. (laughs) Yeah, well, they, they can get mad. Ralph goes on, I have yet to do a closed transfer of beer from the fermenter to the keg. If I carbonate the beer by putting a sugar solution in the keg, then put the beer on top of that and allow it to carbonate for, say, two weeks, wouldn't the re-fermentation in the keg scavenge the oxygen introduced from the open transfer and decrease the risks of oxidized beer? If not totally eliminate the oxygen, at least minimize it? Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. It will, it will reduce it somewhat. It won't eliminate it. Um, I mean, if, if you're trying to, to do this to eliminate the oxygen in your keg, then I think that you're probably not going to be better off than using uh, a number of other methods. But if you're not able to do the closed transfer and you want to give this a try, go for it, man. Right. And the other problem, of course, is going to be, that even if you do reduce the amount of oxygen in the headspace over over time, that's going to take time. And oxidation damage, particularly oxidation damage to hops, which I think is what a lot of people are worried about these days, happens relatively quickly. So I think if you went into the keg without any any sort of protection on that, I don't think necessarily doing the refermentation is going to consume and scavenge the oxygen fast enough to make your to to keep your beer survivable at least the hop character and we say this not knowing how long it takes the oxygen to work on your hops or how long it might take the priming to scavenge the oxygen but you know what it's that's our guess and uh, i think it's it's a reasonably good guess mm-hmm. and don't forget if you're going to prime the keg make sure that you do give it some burst of co2 <laughs> just to make sure you seal the lid or right. you have a big fat gasket because all, a number of the corny kegs that we have out there on the market, and I've got a couple in, in my brewery, don't seal very well until they have about 10 PSI on them. And right. so if you have one of those kegs, then you could have your priming sugar in there and all your CO2 is going to around the lid. Yep, that's right. If you don't seal that lid, then uh, any CO2 that's generated from the priming will just leak right out. All right, and our next question comes from Brazil. Hi, folks. We're just remembering about our trip to Brazil down there, what, six years ago? Yep, that's what it was. And the question actually comes from uh, Felipe de Alvera, who says, On last week's podcast, Denny talked twice about his not-very-good thoughts about the necessity of a stir plate. Searching on the Experimental Brewing website, I found an article about the, you know, it's shaken, not stirred, Mythbusters. Signed by Saccharomyces and found some posts written by this guy on Homebrew Talk as well. Is he one of you? No, he is not. <laughs> he's he's a good friend, but no, it, it's not us. Yeah, uh, it, he definitely does have that same cranky tone that Denny has. Um, if not, could you please tell us a little more detailed reason why you don't think it's necessary? As a brewer that doesn't want to buy everything to look like a commercial brewery, I love this topic. Yeah, well, let me tell you. Um, 
the the reason why I like the method is because I tried it. Uh, I used a stir plate and cell count calculators and all that stuff for many years, uh, thinking, oh man, this is, this is the scientific method. I, I know this is going to be right on. Then, uh, Saccharomyces, or his real name is Mark, showed up with his uh, ideas about the shaken, not stirred starter. And I kind of figured, you know, what the heck? I'll never know unless I try it. Uh, I tried it. I've done nothing else for at least the last five years. I can't even find my stir plate anymore, even if I wanted to. And really what it comes down to is that you have to get over the idea that cell count is the be-all and end-all of yeast. I have found that as long as you're like in the ballpark and you have healthy yeast that's going strong when you pitch it, that's what really matters. Uh, I have found using the shaken, not stirred method that I get better results than I did using the stir plate and uh, crashing and decanting and doing all that stuff. And Mark has a whole bunch of scientific reasons. And if you read his stuff, uh, you'll, you'll see what they are, why the, the shaken, not stir method is a good way to do it. For me, all I really care about is that it works and, and it does. So I would say, if you're on the fence, give it a try like I did and find out for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it comes down to, well, that whole thing that we wrote a book about, simplicity. So part of the reason why we like it is just it's much easier. And God, I hate chasing magnets. And I hate hearing that sound a magnet makes rattling in the bottom of a growler. So, uh, yeah, you know, you know, it, it's kind of like if it didn't work, and at least as well as a stir plate, we wouldn't have kept doing it for so long, right? Uh, we can tell the difference. We've been brewing a long time. We know good beer from bad beer. Um, and, and that's the bottom line right there. Uh, it's faster. It's easier. And I find that I get at least a good results, if not better, because the yeast is healthier and it's active when it goes into the, uh, the beer. There we go. And our next question is actually a voicemail. So, Denny, roll that beautiful voicemail. Hi, this is Chris Bartlett from Skokie, Illinois. I'm considering the purchase of a uh, brewing system called a beer maker that I heard about through Kickstarter. It makes something like five-liter batches, which is about all I have the space for in the apartment I live in right now. One of the things that's held me back is I love using liquid yeast, and I haven't figured out how I would make use of liquid yeast in such small batch brewing. Um, if you have any suggestions for how I would go about, you know, beginning with a pouch that's obviously designed for a five to seven gallon brew, uh, what am I going to do with the 90% of the yeast that I don't need to pitch for the, for the first brew so that I'm not just wasting a whole bunch of liquid yeast, which is something I don't want to do. Alternately, you can convince me that dry yeast has improved to the point where I could simply abandon liquid yeast and uh, use dry yeast, which is much easier to use in smaller quantities. So I'd love to hear either on one of your questions, episodes, or, or wherever it would be appropriate. I'd love to hear how you would solve this problem. And I appreciate it. I appreciate all you do. 
and uh, look forward to hearing more of your shows. Thank you very much. So, Chris, uh, first of all, thanks for your voicemail, man. Uh, and just a reminder, anybody out there can always shoot us a voicemail or text at 626-765-1253. But to get to your question, Chris, I would say just use the whole pack of yeast. It's, it's not a big deal, especially for liquid yeast. Um, you know, just, just go for it. Pour it in there. Don't worry about it. Uh, in terms of dry yeast, yes, you're right. Dry yeast has gotten very, very much better in the last few years. The only limitation seems to be there isn't as much variety of dry yeast as liquid yeast. But even that's changing now. Yeah, that is changing. Uh, there's getting to be some really interesting dry yeasts coming out. I'll just tell you, if I have a choice between liquid and dry, and there's a dry yeast that's going to give me what I want, I'll do that over the liquid because it's so much easier, and easier is what we're all about. Indeed, and to your point about you know, splitting things off and saving, you can do that because there are people out there, and you find the technique everywhere where people are talking about, oh, you know, I made a starter with my yeast, and then I pitched part of the starter and kept the other part so I can propagate a new starter, right? Um, you can do that same sort of thing. I wouldn't worry that worry that much about it. I am a little curious about that beer maker appliance because that one seems a little strange to me, but I'm willing to actually see what it's all about. But in the meanwhile, don't sweat it. Yeah, don't sweat it. Do it either way you like. If it was me, just for the sake of simplicity, I'd just pitch the whole pack in. Okay, we have an email from Christopher Lake, and it's back to Drew. Drew has a guide to saisons and yeasts on the Falcon website. I'm curious if he's ever completed testing. <laughs> I'm curious if he ever completed tasting the various yeasts that were marked as testing month year. Yes. If so, it'd be great to hear back on those results. <laughs> also, he expressed a preference for BE134 yeast over Bell Saison. I'm curious if there are any dry yeasts that really compete with the best of the liquids. No. Thanks. Yeah. I've heard you say that before. And, uh, you know, I had my friend Brant over to brew last weekend, and he's a big Saison guy. And he was using, I think, maybe like Bell Saison or something oh. like that. And I, I was telling him, you hadn't really found a dry Saison yeast you liked, and he was astounded. Yeah, so going back to Chris's questions here. So, yes, I have completed those uh, tastings. No, I haven't written up my notes because I'm lazy. Uh, so I do need to do that. So thank you for the sh the public shaming and reminding me to do that. Um, I do still prefer BE 134 over Bell Saison. Again, I, these days I kind of have a, uh, I have a real boredom with uh, the French Saison strains. So that's part of That's, uh, that's part, driving at least part of it. And I think BE 134 at least actually gives you some interesting phenols. Um, so yeah, it, to the, to the final point on that, no, I don't think there are, there are any dry yeast out there that can compete with the best of the, the liquid strains. Uh, I am still hoping that that will happen because again, dry yeast is incredibly convenient and useful. Uh, but until then, nope, I'm still going to keep reaching for liquid when I'm making my saisons. Yeah, that's right. Uh, if I'm making something like a, a West coast IPA or something, uh, almost always dry unless I'm looking for something special. But if I'm uh, making a triple, then I'm going to be reaching for the liquid yeast. Yes, indeed. And our next question comes from Steve Rutch, who's a longtime friend of ours from the AHA forum, who asked, what is this extract twang I keep reading about, 
but never actually experienced in my beer than Genzo. Wow. Steve, you are a lucky guy. Steve is pretty much an extract brewer. He, he used to be all grain, but uh, due to space limitations, he went back to extract. So he goes through a lot of extract, and he's a really good brewer, and he knows what he's talking about. So, Steve, I would say you have been a lucky guy. Uh, if you're using LME and you haven't gotten the extract twang, then you are getting really good extract from someplace. Uh, that flavor, I mean, I don't know why it's called a twang, but uh, the flavor is usually related to old, stale liquid extract that's uh, been oxidized. Uh, and... It, that's it's an easy thing to do. Uh, many many homebrew stores uh, have extract that is not kept well because it doesn't sell quickly. Obviously, you found some place to get it from where you get good extract. And Drew, uh, you said that you uh, get really good LME from your store too, huh? Yeah, my store, the Home Beer Wine Juice Making Shop in Woodland Hills, California. They they actually buy LME in big bulk drums, like those big blue 55-gallon plastic drums. And they keep it fresh. They, they go through a fair amount, but they also keep it fresh because they nitrogen flush and nitrogen drive those uh, those syrup tanks. So it's always staying fresh and minimizing the amount of oxygen. But yeah, bad extract or old extract, stale extract, is one of the very big reasons why extract brewers have a poor reputation. That and the fact yeah. that uh, that and the fact that a lot of ex- extract brewers are new brewers who have, uh, let's say, a less than perfect understanding of fermentation mechanics and sanitation. Right, and then you have somebody like Steve who's been brewing for a long time. If they get good extract, they know uh, how to make use of it to turn out really good beer. Yeah, and so, if you if you go when you listen back to uh, man, I think it was one of the first uh, the brew files. I, I talked with a friend of mine, Jay Ankeny, who he's been an extract brewer his entire time. And he's been extract brewing for 30 some odd years longer, and he makes perfectly good beer with his extract. So it's not the extract yep. a lot of times. Yep. I've judged best of show rounds that were won by an extract beer, uh, which, of course, we didn't know until afterwards. But, yeah, it can be done. Get good quality ingredients. Know what to do with them. Same as anything else in brewing, right? Indeed. And so our final question before we head into our second break is from Cliff, also from the HA Forum. You can always find us at homebrewersassociation.org slash forum and ask us questions there and talk with a very nice community there. He asked, why do some hops give a different bitterness than others? And Cliff, that is a question for the ages. And is a question that is becoming, that is a question that is becoming even more important as, as IPAs and all things hoppy have come to rule the roost in American beer. So rather than giving you my take on it, because I have thoughts, and I know, Denny, you have thoughts, I actually reached out to Stan Hieronymus, you know, the man who wrote the book Hops. And I asked him because yeah. Stan's doing a lot of tracking of current hop science and current research and current varieties as well. And his answer to the question was percentage of cumulon. Like everything else, this has been disputed, but brewers I respect say they notice harsher bitterness with higher cohumulin. Isomerized alpha acids, more bitterness per buck, versus human loans, which are the things that we've talked about before, uh, more present in dry hop beers and two-thirds as bitter as isoalpha acid. So remember, we've talked about that a couple times on the show as well. Polyphenols, and Stan notes this as a big depends because used in the boil and in a low alpha 
relatively high beta-alpha balance hop like Herzberger, they add mouthfeel and perception of smoother bitterness. In a heavily dry-hopped beer, they add to bitterness. And you guys will hear me talking a little bit about this with uh, Jack Hendler next week from uh, Jack's Abbey and about making a hoppy lager. Odor compounds may suggest a bitterness that is perceived in the mind but not in the tongue. For instance, research in the UK has found that low bitterness level, the addition of aroma oils increased perceived bitterness intensity and made bitterness harsher and more lingering. Same, uh, same researchers found components in Herzberger oils that mediated sensations in the mouth, which can moderate perceived bitterness quality and intensity. And his bonus answer is auxiliary bitterness compounds. These encompasses all the bitter compounds and hop resins, which are transferred into the beer and which are not iso-alpha acids. These would include the humulones that we'd already mentioned about, but also quite, uh, quite a bit more. And he goes on to deliver a lot of rules here. So he says the majority of these substances are not considered desirable from a sensory perspective. They reduce lingering bitterness and contribute to the quality and harmony of bitterness. The ratio of nonspecific bittering units, uh, IBUs, to the specific iso-alpha acids, not something that can be measured at home, or in fact, at most of the 6,000-plus breweries in the United States, serves as an indicator for the amount of auxiliary bitter compounds in beer. The ratio is equal to one in beers brewed with one hop addition of high-alpha hops at the beginning of the boil, in which case the bittering units would almost be equivalent to the iso-alpha content. So again, he's talking about bittering units from things that aren't iso-alpha acids. So... Uh, he says, if Brewers does not have equipment to measure the ratio, what is she to do? A few rules of thumb. High alpha varieties, particularly those with low percentage beta acids, will contribute little auxiliary bittering compounds. Short boiling times increase the concentration because fewer alpha acids are isomerized. Late hop additions increase the concentration for the same reasons. Dry hopping increases the concentration for the same reasons. No surprise, quantity increases the concentration. And then finally, using hops with a high beta to alpha ratio increases concentrations. This is the flip side of the first item on this list. The hops with the highest beta alpha ratio from 1 to 3 to 1, or sorry, from 1.3 to 1 to 2.4 to 1 are all land race varieties chosen rather than bred, such as Zotz, Milford, and Strusselsprout. In contrast, New World hops currently popular for late dry hopping and whose names, Citra, Mosaic, Galaxy, etc., end up plastered on the sides of cans have ratios more like 1 to 2.3, 1 to 3.3, or 1 to 3.6. So I think to summarize this, basically, the, the way I would take it is if you're using more hops, particularly lower alpha acid hops, they still have bittering compounds that are found in outside this. Cohumulone, these are all things that give rise to bitter flavors, and in particular when they're used in, in the ways that we're using them now, the older varieties tend to throw a, a kind of a harsher bitterness. The newer varieties, because of the way they're bred for oils, don't throw that same sort of bitterness. Whew. Wow, man! Congratulations. I need a nap, but I, I'm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put this out there. If you guys want more information like this, uh, obviously we'll, we'll have Stan on the show to talk through some of this. But uh, the other thing is, go follow Stan's website, Appalachian Beer. And he has a regular newsletter that comes out with the latest hop research and other things that you may find useful. If you were able to, to sit here and hold, hold your mind's concentration on what I was saying, go subscribe to his blog. Well, you know what? And uh, for those of you who kind of like wandered off halfway through, uh, we'll post that reply on the website so you can read it there. There we go. And now it's time for a break. Hooray! Time for a break. When we come back, we'll get on with the questions and answers, so please stick around. 
The Brew Deck Podcast features exclusive interviews with your favorite brewers and suppliers. Each episode highlights new trends and brewing tips from leaders in the industry to inspire your next brew. Listen to the Brew Deck Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeast's Spring on the Patio private collection release evokes spring vibes and a change in routine as patios, beer gardens, and backyard brew days welcome a round of pints among friends again. This collection holds something for all brewers, novice to expert or modern to traditional. Mix up your hazy IPA routine with 1217 West Coast IPA and join us for the AHA's Big Brew Day on May 1st and brew Janet's Brown Ale with this easy-to-use neutral strain. And I gotta tell you, it's one of my favorites. Try your hand at a fruited, smoked, or one-of-a-kind Goza or Berliner Weiss with the tartness of 5223 Lacto Bacillus Brevis, or opt for the flexible performance and traditional malty flavor of 2575 Kolsch 2. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth-generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. Welcome back, everybody. We are getting on with the questions and answers, and I guess it's time for a little uh, philosophy talk now. This one comes in from Eric B. on the AHA forum, and it's one that we see a lot. Eric asks, what keeps your passion for the hobby going after all these years? Have you ever hit a lull where things just weren't doing it for you? And if so, what brought you back? What's your thought on quike loggers? Have you ever tried any or brewed any? And what did you think of them? You first, buddy. So first off, let's tackle actually the last question in there because I know Denny's answer is going to be relatively quick. What are your thoughts on quike loggers? Have you tried any or brewed any? And what do you think of them? I have tried them. I have brewed one of them. I made actually I made a quite cream ale, and I thought it was fine. But for me, it didn't really. I didn't have a compelling reason to want to keep doing it because I still got even with what was that was the Oslo I used in the one that I did even with the Oslo, which is reputed to be a very clean one. I still got some other flavors, some other uh, other compounds in there that I, that I didn't really want. And I don't really need to turn around a cream ale in three days. So uh, I've had some commercially and they're fine. But again, I don't have those those pressures. So. I'll be curious to see because I know folks are the kind of the holy grail of Quike is 
can we make something that ferments as fast and furious and as hot as Quake, but in a very, very clean fashion? So I'm going to assume, Denny, I'm just going to answer for you now. No. Uh, well, you know what, man? I'm I'm a little bit more open-minded than that, although no is really the answer. Uh, but <laughs> I, I will just say that uh, I have not had a Quike beer that is supposed to be clean that really seemed clean to me. So until then, uh, I would have to say no. Uh, I would say that, like you, I don't really need to turn over a beer in three days. Uh, it would be a pain for me to maintain those high temps anyway. Until I can find a quite yeast that will produce a beer as clean as I could get with a lager yeast or even a really clean American ale yeast, uh, I'm probably not going to be going there. All right. All right. And then on the, the more philosophical question, uh, what keeps your passion going? Has it, has it nearly died and what brought you back? Yes. Uh, I'm going to tackle that for that part first because I think it's very important. About a decade ago or so, actually about the time I bought this house, I went and I, I built myself a big brew rig, you know, cause I was like, yes, I'm a real boy. I can, I have a house. It's a nice permanent situation. I'm going to be able to brew 15 gallons. So I really, it was just a matter of like, Ooh, Hey, you know, I, I can now make this 15 gallons, but it turns out that rig was so unwieldy and like, yeah, okay. I have to roll it out of my garage. I have to get it set. 15 gallons is a lot of beer and I don't necessarily want 15 gallons of the same beer all the time. And I went from brewing on the regular to maybe brewing twice a year. So what ended up bringing me back was actually getting a chance to play around with some new toys and new techniques, exploring brewing a bag, exploring using like the Pico brew systems at the time, exploring using some of these all-in-one systems like the Grainfather I currently use. And those made it fun for me to brew again. And they made it so that I wasn't like stressing out over having this big pile of equipment that I was constantly moving around and doing things with. So those brought back the fun to it. As for what keeps me going is the fact that I am, I am obsessed with trying to learn something new all the time. And the good thing is so far in the beer world and particularly recently, there's always something new to learn, whether it's different hopping techniques or, you know, stuff going on with the quike strains or, you know, just any of these different techniques, like how to operate a canner, those are just things that I'm finding are fun and they're actually fueling what I do. And that's how I, that's how I really kind of keep it going and how I keep it revived. How about you, sir? I have definitely gone through slumps and mine were kind of equipment related also because I'm super lazy. Uh, you know, when I was brewing with my cooler and kettle system, it eventually reached the point where it was just, more work than I wanted to do. And I agree, go into things like the Pico Brew, these grandfather systems, uh, especially the G70, has made brewing so much easier. And there's never any panic halfway through. <laughs> they just work like they're supposed to. Uh, and so it's become a lot more fun. Yeah, just as long as you uh, remember to close the valve on your conical. Yeah, right. Well, it's been a long time since I've done that. It's, there's nothing like really screwing things up to uh, help you learn. Like Drew, the learning experience was a, a big thing for a long time. And I, I still enjoy discovering new things and figuring out how things work. But to tell you the truth, for me, the whole thing is just 
the process itself. I have a great time on a brew day going out there and making the beer and watching that magic happen. And I think that's the thing that draws me back. Uh, I also want to tell you that if you don't feel like brewing, don't brew. Don't force yourself into it. You don't have to do it. It's a hobby. You do it because you enjoy it. So if you have a lull, fine, great, do something else. And then just wait, and I'm willing to bet that eventually you'll be getting the urge to brew again. Yep, and then at some point you'll run into the into the same situation that I think we all do, staring at the fermenter, sniffing the airlock, wondering just when is it going to be done? <laughs> yeah, I have to admit, man, I don't do that anymore. Well, you never know. It may come back around. Everything in cycles. And speaking of everything in cycles, our good buddy Jeff Rankert, who you'll remember is on the program in the past, he he wanted to ask us a question. Will smoke beers gain as large of a share here that they have in Bamberg? Jeff, silly question. No. Uh, Yeah, right. I I can't see it happening, man. uh, I mean, I love smoke beers, and I know a lot of brewers who love smoke beers. And I will tell you, if there's anything in this world that sits in an American brewery longer than a smoke beer... I can't tell you what it would be. <laughs> <laughs> when I get the urge for a smoke beer, I just lick an ashtray. There you are. Just go get some uh, hickory liquid smoke. Yeah, right. No, I, I, I like, I mean, I actually like smoke beers, so. Yeah, well, and, and smoke beer fans, I didn't mean to insult you by that. That's okay. We're used to it. Um, and then just second questions. Uh, are side pool faucets required for a new brewery doing lager styles? And, Boy, if you look at Instagram, you sure would think so. So if you haven't seen, and Denny, I don't know if you've had any experience with side poles. No, I have no idea what they are. So they are, I think, what, they're Czech in origin, I want to say. Um, but they're very cool, old-fashioned you know, taps. And, yeah, it seems like if you're particularly if you're going to do a slow-pour pills, it almost seems de rigueur to have a, a side faucet. Does it actually do anything for the beer different than a normal faucet? You know what? I I need to have a few more examples before I can definitively answer that. Is it cool? More research is required. Yes. Is it is it cool? Do they look cool? Yes, they do. Um, is it going to become kind of a thing, kind of like going to a place and seeing subway tile and Edison lights? Quite possibly. <laughs> it's the hipster tap. Exactly. But, I mean... Uh, I just I had mentioned Ashley Carter a few weeks back with the Women's International Beer Summit. We uh, I got to moderate her panel, and you know she's the master of slow pour pills here in the United States. And I'm I think we need to have her on so that she can educate us on it. Well, if you say so, I do. All right, and our next question comes from Wilbur, who on the HA forum asked, said, "I'd like to hear some thoughts on when we reach peak hop variety." It seems the Germans are coming up with new varieties that are Hallotower, but a little tropical. And there's a few new New World varieties every year, it seems. Sometimes I see older varieties like Comet come back up. At what point do you think a bunch of old varieties are going to get retired? It's, it's easy when they don't sell, right? It's a, it's a business, right? The hop growers are going to grow what people want to buy. Uh, a good example is Centennial. 
when we go up to uh, the Yakima area and talk to hop growers there, I always ask them if there's a variety they wish they didn't have to grow, <laughs> and unanimously they say Centennial. Low yield, uh, disease prone, uh, just a total pain for them to grow. But brewers want it, and as long as brewers want it and are willing to pay for it, they're going to keep growing it. And that's the same thing with old varieties. It's the same thing with new varieties. If new varieties come on and people like them and they sell, they're going to stick around. If new varieties come on and nobody really pushes them and, and buys them, they might go away very quickly. Although I guarantee you that the hop growers are going to do their best to try and get those varieties out there and get brewers to start loving them because it takes many years and many millions of dollars to bring a single new hop variety to market. You know, that makes me wonder. I don't think if we've ever asked or I've never asked Yakima. I'd, I have to assume that somewhere, just like how they have the R&D field, somewhere there's a field that just keeps growing like older style hops just to have them on hand, just in case something happens, right? Well, I mean, or, or am I insane? Well, there's there's a, a genetic repository of hops in uh, in Corvallis, and uh, they have uh, rhizomes and seeds from pretty much every variety that's ever existed and many, many thousands that we've never even heard of. So I think that would be as close as you would get to a repository. There you go. But uh, do old-style old hops get retarded? Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you the last time I saw, um, oh, what was it? Uh, Eroica, right? Uh, Eroica, I was thinking about that uh, a couple weeks back. I, I can't even tell you the last time I've, I've seen that in sure, available. Sure. It's because, it's because demand dried up and people stopped using it. And so they're not, I mean, if that happens, they're going to pull it out and put the acreage into hops that bring in the bucks. Yeah. Look at, look at what happened with Citra. <laughs> Citra exploded. Now suddenly everything's yeah, Citra. That's um, right. That's and, right. and as for peak hop varieties, no, I don't think we are because I think right now, or here, let me let me couch this better. I think as long as the big commercial trend in craft beer is hop forward and hop flavor, no, I don't think we you're going to reach peak hop variety anytime soon because one of the things that they need to keep doing is what are some new flavors that we can put out there? What's a new what's a new name we can put out there to to be able to draw people back in? And so, no, I, I think as long as beer is, or as long as the populace is obsessed with hop-forward beer, I think we're going to still keep seeing new hops. I also think we're always going to see new hops anyway, for some of the reasons Danny just mentioned, yield, disease resistance, etc. Yeah, and again, let's, let's remember, this is a commercial market, and so if hop growers and breeders can keep coming up with new varieties, they're going to keep people interested, so... Okay, next question comes from the other Drew on the AHA forum, and it's a three-parter. First one, in light of your shift to your best, least, most brewing philosophy, would you update your top five, top ten priorities, like Palmer's sanitation, temp, yeast management, boil recipe for making good beer? Uh, part B, just how much does mash temp actually matter? Or put another way, how far off your target mash temp would you need to be to result in a perceptibly different final project? And part Roman numeral three, is there any movement in the industry to improve hop packaging to list more measurements than just the AA percentage? This seems increasingly woefully inadequate labeling. You first. 
yeah, I think our our priorities haven't changed that much recently. Of course, while we've been doing this, we've you know sort of formulated what they currently are. And the way I always put it in, in our talks is that more than anything else, you know, your sanitation does uh, it does matter, right? You, you got to focus on that, no matter what. If we're we're in a microbiological world, we want to make sure we got friendly critters. Followed by yeast vitality matters more than anything else, I think. And in fact, if you have really healthy yeast, you can get away with a lot of very stupid practices. Um, and then otherwise. Water chemistry is way more than I ever thought when I was either a newbie brewer or even sort of a journeyman brewer or even, you know, after I started writing. And fermentations, temperatures-ish. But no, I think as long as you focus on your sanitation and your yeast vitality and your water chemistry, I think you're, you're gold. Yeah, I would I would go with that too. Uh, I would say that I think fermentation temperatures make a, a pretty big difference, but it depends on, on the yeast you're using. But, you know, um, fermenting the same yeast at, say, 55 degrees Fahrenheit and 70 degrees Fahrenheit will give you profound differences that, that you'll be able to, to detect. Unless it's 3470. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I can detect it even then. I, and it doesn't mean that it's bad at higher temperatures. It just means it's different. Um, I would say for me, and I kind of touched on this earlier, my number one priority is have a good time. None of that other crap matters if you're not having a good time. If you're out in the brewery kind of like slogging through and getting upset about things and stuff like that, uh, ha- have a good time when you brew. Uh, take care of things, but don't stress. Okay, next, just how much does mash temp actually matter? Uh, it matters over a broad range. It doesn't matter within a few degrees. And uh, bottom line is it's going to make more differences to different malts, uh, right? Uh, some malts, it won't matter if you're off by 10 degrees. Some of them, it will make a difference if you're off by 5. Yep. And to your point, I think particularly as you as you go to people who are smaller maltsters, the craft maltsters out there, there will probably be more of an impact there. But particularly for any of the, <laughs> any of the, the sort of the bigger maltsters, you, you look at those malts funny and they convert. Yeah, right. I mean, for me in terms of mash temps, right. Uh, if I'm making something like a Pilsner or a triple where I want a, a real light body and a crispness to it, I will do a 90 minute mash at 148 for other things like pale ales, porters, all that kind of stuff, it'll be a 153 to 155 mash uh, for 60 minutes, and that's that's about all I really do, you know. Yep. And again, don't uh, don't stare at your malt too long because it will become beer. <laughs> that's right. And is there any movement in the industry to improve hop packaging to list more measurements? I know that for a while Yakima Chief was doing that, but I don't think that they are anymore. Well, I haven't seen I think the, anybody I think, doing it. Have you? No, I mean, not so much on packaging, right? At least at the at the homebrew level, because that's an awful lot of packages to, to put together. What I have seen is more and more the companies out there like Yakima Chief or Yakima Valley, they are either having mobile apps, like, for instance, Yakima Chief has a mobile app, um, or they're beefing up their websites to be able to give you more information about 
a particular hop. And so like, even if you go and look just at, you know, the, the Yakima chief website, uh, which is just yakimachief.com, and you go into their shop and you go and you look at the, the different hops that they have, they list alpha beta, they list the cohumulone uh, percentages, and they also list the, the total amount of oil. Now I suspect that as time marches forward and we, we have more and more of these discussions about, different dry hop techniques, different hopping techniques in general, different impacts of linalool versus geranol versus this, that, and the other, we're going to see more of that information. Will it ever actually appear on the packages? Again, I'm guessing at the homebrew level, no. But I'm guessing it will always be available for us on a place like the website or their app. Yeah, I, I can't see it on the packages because it is an agricultural product, and so that means that information is going to be changing all the time. So they would have to like have packages printed uh, based on the amount of, of a specific lot of hops that they had. And I, I can't see that happening, but I do agree that that's why you're going to see more and more of this online because that's easy and it's uh, easy to change when you get a new lot of hops. Yeah, and don't, and don't forget, you can also you can do the same thing with your malts too, right? If you have the lot sticker for your malt, you can go look up the, the lot analysis. So there's information available to us. It's just it doesn't tend to come back across on packaging as much for the very reason that Denny was mentioning. And sometimes it makes more difference than others, too. So Yes. Our next question comes from Steven Reimchen in Germany. Steven, I hope I didn't screw up your name too bad there. And Steven writes, A friend from my homebrew club seems to have a problem with oxidation. He brewed a West Coast IPA for a competition here in Germany and has given me one freshly filled bottle for feedback. It had a really bright, fruity nose and was all over very delicious. Now, two weeks later, he provided some bottles to our club, and it now shows signs of oxidation. The bright, fruity nose is almost completely gone, and there is a light shift in color. Problem is, we can't figure out what could be the problem in his process. From what he told me, he seems to be doing everything right. He brews in a classic three-vessel system, ferments under pressure in a keg land from Zilla, transfers the beer under pressure to a corny keg, which was filled with water and pushed empty and pressurized with CO2. He bottles with a counter-pressure filler, which fills from the bottom. He then knocks the bottles with a wrench to get it to foam and caps on the foam. Is there something that we're missing? Might some sort of antioxidant be beneficial, like ascorbic acid or potassium metabisulfide, or could it be helpful to use those oxygen-scavenging bottle caps? Any ideas? Thanks in advance. He cleans the keg with Enzibrew. The connections are disassembled and cleaned and sanitized with isopropanol. The complete keg gets sanitized with hot steam for several minutes. Then it is filled with regular tap water, which, by the way, is not chlorinated or anything over here, and then emptied and pressurized with CO2. He and his girlfriend just tried some Maybach, of which he only bottled half a keg. They both agree that the version off the keg has decidedly more aroma and tastes fresher overall. Well, that's a, a pretty big hint there, huh? Yep. It was, and this was a whole conversation that was happening on Facebook. And so th this is the reason why sometimes it's useful to get your information in early and maybe uh, we can drag some more out because initially there, they didn't really, there was no specification about what was happening with, you know, bottle versus keg. And that's really what I wanted to dig into because that's usually that that's an inflection point, right? So you know that if the keg's fine, but the bottles are off, then it's obviously something about the bottling process. So, because, I mean, just in reading what's in here, like, I'd be actually concerned about the steam in the in the keg, 
or not the not the semen the keg for sanitation because that worked, uh, but actually just the the water for the the flush. Um, but if the kegs are fine, then it's something going on downstream with the bottling problem, right? Yeah, uh, you know, and it, it, it's hard to say exactly what it might be. He's right. He's using a counter pressure filler mm-hmm. so on the bottom. He, the, right, so the bottle should be filled with CO two. So, well, my guess would be the place to check is actually check that counter pressure filler. See if there isn't some way that you can that, that you get oxygen ingress during the the filling process. Like even if it's something as simple as you know bubbles in the keg line, you know, that are coming off to to the wand itself. Cuz that Except could be Those bubbles would be CO2, wouldn't they? Unless you're getting oxygen uh entrained through the the it, connection. Yeah, that's true. You, the, maybe your keg disconnect or something is yep. leaking. I I don't know, Stephen. There are a lot of very vague possibilities. I would say concentrate on the bottling process and try to eliminate one variable at a time. Yeah, and the reason why I'm saying oxygen is because if if you're talking about in this IPA, for instance, that that bright fruity nose is almost completely gone, and that you have a, a shift in color. Shift in color may just be indicative of yeast settling, for instance. But it, you know, it, if it keeps going, then yeah, it's probably oxygen. But definitely, yeah, definitely lo- losing that hop aroma. That's yeah, nice lots of, of hop aroma and and darkening of the beer both kind of point to oxygen problems someplace, but. Exactly where, man, I don't know. Yeah, I'm telling you, watch the connections on your counter-pressure filler. Yep, that's good advice. Okay, we have got one more from Gary Holmes on Facebook, and Gary says, This isn't beer-related, but wine-related. Degassing a wine goes against all we were taught, I assume he means in home brewing. Uh-huh. Is this not a contributing factor in oxidizing your wine by introducing oxygen into it? Gary, uh-huh. wine isn't beer. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> D- different rules, man. Uh, and, you know, basically, when you open a bottle of wine, the first thing you want to try to do is get oxygen into it, right? Uh, you pour it into a pitcher. You pour it between a couple glasses. Uh, I've seen America's Test Kitchen recommend pouring a bottle of wine into the blender and whizzing it up in there to get some oxygen into it. So just because there are certain things you need to do for beer doesn't mean that uh, it's the same for wine. Yeah, although please don't use a blender on your expensive wine. Uh, and, well, you know what, man? If America's Test Kitchen says so, I'd at least give it a try. Mm-hmm. But here's actually the the other point, Gary, is that Danny's right. Wine is not beer. One of the great advantages that winemakers have, vintners have over brewers, is their product has the addition of more alcohol generally, right? So even a light wine is generally somewhere around 10% alcohol, a lower pH and higher, higher acidity levels, which are also protectants. And then also when they're making wine, they use potassium metabisulfite or sodium metabisulfite. They, they, they use Campton. You know, the thing I always keep telling you is, Oh yeah, add that to your chlorinated water and you'll be able to drive off your chlorine or chloramines. That's used as a sanitizing and stabilization agent in winemaking. And that also serves as an antioxidant. So wine, uh, wine gets to, gets to cheat. They don't have to worry about sanitation as much and they, they, they don't have to worry about their oxygenation as much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly why winemakers can sanitize with uh, metabisulfite, uh, where we're going crazy with star sand and all that other stuff. So, yep. All right. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's a bunch of questions down. 
yeah, that wraps it up for this episode, and we have a few more that we'll be tossing into the next episode, uh, hopefully along with a conversation with uh, our friend Dave Taylor, who sent in some great questions that we figured uh, need a direct conversation. Wait, no, wait, hold on. He sent in a book. <laughs> yeah, right. And there are some very interesting questions that we're going to get to kick around next time. So, But until then... Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Hey, I just reactivated my Instagram account, so come and see what I'm doing. You'll oh, be Lord. bored. <laughs> if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, uh, recipes, uh, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to talk to each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And as we've mentioned, you can leave us a voicemail or shoot us a text at 626-765-1-ALE. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.